A podcast where we go one-on-one with fiction creators, such as authors, filmmakers, actors, songwriters, and more. Each episode, we get the inside scoop on our guests' creative process, the ups and downs of their industries, and our guests also give out tips and tricks that help them become successful. And now, let's jump into the episode with your host, Chris C.L. Lowry. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Fiction Addiction Podcast. My next guest has been creating art and telling stories since she was old enough to hold a pen. Her art has been featured on convention badges and book covers and at various art shows throughout the Southeast. Despite writing and illustrating her first science fiction story at the age of eight and being published in her high school literary magazine, She has been unwilling to call herself a writer until recently, when she published her first novel, The Laws of Entanglement. She currently works as the social media and marketing person for Mocha Memoirs Press, a local micro press whose mission is to amplify marginalized voices and speculative fiction. When she's not creating art or writing, she can be found gaming or working on her next cosplay. Ladies and gentlemen, Maya Preisler, what is going on? Hi. Excuse me, frog (laughs) in my throat there. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on, Maya? What's going on? So let's jump into your writing journey. Um, All right. Since you seem like you've done it since a very young age. So what got you started in writing? Um, I I guess I was just around it all of the time. My... uh, both my grandfathers were writers. One of them actually had a book published. The other one was a poet who was always scribbling little poems in the margins of the newspaper. So it just, it's, it was normal. Oh, wow. Um, so my, uh, my, my birth mother, one of the positive things I can say about her is that she was uh, one of those people who was always coming up with weird stories to explain things. so um so eight eight you began writing and illustrating your first science fiction story what was what came first for you in terms of um being young and being attracted to this more the writing or the illustrating Huh, that's a hard question to answer. I guess maybe the story came first, but then as I was telling myself the story, these images would sort of unfold in my head and it became this constant struggle to find a way to express both the words and the visuals because I'm not necessarily a very uh, verbal thinker, I think in visuals. And so trying to find a way to distill that into a communicative Mm. fashion. So what what was the influence behind the illustration? Was it just solely your writing or were there family members who um, were interested in art as well? Um, I had uh, family members who were interested in art as well. There were uh, they were all musicians as well. Like everybody in my family, for some bizarre reason, all played the saxophone. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, jazz saxophone specifically. 
And so I think I wanted to uh, find a way to be as creative as they were. Mm. And so to, to, I don't know, to receive that recognition that they had. Um, so I put that, that into the drawings and it was, you know, it was influenced of course by pop culture. Like we all are. Yeah, you know, definitely. <laughs> Star so, Trek had a lot to do with it. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so did you ever gravitate towards music because your family members were so into it? I did, but I wanted, I always wanted to do the really cool, weird things. Like I wanted to play the violin or be a drummer. And they really mm. wanted me to be like marching band saxophone because, you know, there was five saxophones laying around the house. They wouldn't have to pay for right. a new instrument or lessons. And uh, I just, you know, I, I didn't want to follow the trend. I had to be different. <laughs> that, that didn't work out well. I'm terrible at keeping time. <laughs> so you're so you're eight years old how did the science fiction story um come about uh i had a teacher who was trying to encourage us all to read and so she wanted us to write stories and the only way that i was interested in writing a story was for it to be a story that i wanted to read and so everybody else was writing stories about you know, the normal things that eight-year-olds write about, riding bikes, uh, getting a dog, having a party. And I was like, no, I need, I need there to be people with psychic powers and uh, extraterrestrial planets. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and luckily, yes. my teacher was very supportive and let me do that. Wow. So then you go into high school and then you get published in the school's magazine. How was that? Um, I had really supportive English teachers who were constantly giving me good grades and good feedback on my writing. And one of them happened to be the, you know, the faculty person in charge of the literary magazine and encouraged me to submit some of my stuff. And it was all, you know, voted on by members of the student body. So how was how was that how was that feeling uh, knowing when you got picked and selected? I, it was weird because I. I didn't think I was good enough. So to have a bunch of people that I didn't think particularly liked me, like my writing, I was like, well, I guess I can't be that bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you were, what was it consistency in writing from age eight into high school or was it on and off? Um, it was fairly consistent in terms of poetry or story ideas. Like I have notebooks after notebooks and I had probably an entire drawer in my filing cabinet full of scribbles where I was constantly coming up with something but I was never really doing anything with it or showing it to anyone mm. and wh why was that I guess I just didn't think I was good enough you know and in addition I think to having all these creative people in my family, despite the fact that I came from a family of like musicians and writers, they all had really normal day jobs, like engineer, designer, mm. you know, grocery store clerk, the poetry right. happened at night kind of thing. So there was a push for me to do something, you know, practical. Mm. So w when did the confidence come? Um, 
much, much later, like in adulthood, I started making friends with a bunch of other writers and reading their stuff and knowing them as people and being like, really? That's it's so you just you just write it and then you put it out there and that's all you have to do was there's not some <laughs> elaborate vetting process where they check to see if you're worthy or good enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, so once you get into this this world, this 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 writing world, you see it's something that's attainable as a I guess a career path, um, as many have made it. What was your goal? When, when it came to writing, was it something you, as a, as a young woman growing up, knew you wanted to do for a living? Or was it, like you said, was it something you knew you wanted to do on the side at night um, in addition to a normal nine to five? It was always something I knew that I wanted to do, but I didn't really have the concept that people could do it as a job. I thought it had to be a side gig. Really, I um, I don't even necessarily think of it as a a job now so much as like a, something that I have to do to keep myself sane. <laughs> so, so why 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 is it that you don't think of it as a job? Is it because of the passion, the passion you have for it? I think so. I think so. Like in, in my head, I have this idea that work is something that you have to do. Mm. Um, even though you don't necessarily want to, but so that anything that I'm actually enjoying and having fun doing, if I'm having fun and then I get paid, that's not really work. That's play right. that people are paying me to do. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what, um, you won a, you won a bunch of awards. You have a lot of accomplishments when it comes to writing. Um, you were an official Atlanta Con artist 2015, 2016, 2017, second page, second place uh Con Carolina's badge artist contest in 2017. Uh you were illustrator of a book series for children in foster kinship and adoptive care, among uh, many other things. So how did it feel obtaining those ac accomplishments and getting those accolades? And which one would you say is the most rewarding to you? I think it always feels a little surreal because I'm, I'm in my head. I'm still the little kid trying to keep up with the rest of the people in the family. Um, but uh, I think the one that meant the most to me is honestly being asked to illustrate uh, the book series for kids. Mm. How'd that come along? Uh, well, so my adoptive mother has worked in the foster care and adoption industry for, I guess, a large portion of her career. And she had a work friend who wanted to write a series of children's books, sort of helping children navigate this challenging emotional place of being in care. And she said, you know, I really, I need someone to illustrate this and I need to get this published, but I have no idea where to start. And my mom in her infinite wisdom said, I think you should talk to Maya. <laughs> um, which was, it was really scary at the time because I, I didn't know anything about book publishing or what we were going to do or how we were going to do it. Uh, but I really wanted to be a part of that because it's a, an area that's pretty close to my heart. Mm. 
Now, uh, once you got the opportunity, was was there? Because many times, once we dive into something, especially something that's close to us, especially something that has meaning to our lives and can impact people, um, was there pressure on you to make sure that it was perfect for the um, the children? There was. There was so much pressure on my part, and. Um... Ironically, I think the the universe kind of worked it out for me because right at about the time that the deadlines for the project started being due, I went through a really horrible breakup. And so I had this choice of I can fall into depression and watch stupid chick flicks and eat ice cream all day, or I can get up and adult and illustrate this book. And uh, getting up and illustrating the book helped me work through my own stuff but it also gave right. me the drive to push through in a place where yeah I probably would have not been able to do it I think had I not been gifted with that circumstance so what motivated you um to keep going at, at that point in time and with, with as much as you were dealing with because obviously breakups aren't easy and um Everyone copes in different ways. Everyone deals with stress and different situations in different ways. So what do you believe kept you motivated for this project? I am. I'm a hyper competitive person sometimes in my uh, in my youth. One of my favorite songs was that old throwback from the 50s. Like anything you can do, I can do better. And Mm. I, I was in this headspace of being mad at him because he's, you know, successful and published and I was like all right you know what I can be successful too and I'm going to prove to you that I can be just as successful as you are so uh it might have been my desire for revenge because success is the best <laughs> revenge <laughs> oh so he was also a writer yes wow have you guys since or like are you not on speaking terms or have you since like mended the breakup in them um, I can, I can, you know, be polite and, and be nice, but, um, he's not really someone that I'm interested in being friends with because I've grown a lot since then. Right. So what do you find more difficult, um, for you being a writer or being an illustrator? Hmm. I think probably being an illustrator. That uh, the images in my head move so quickly and are so hard to put, I guess, into reality that Mm. it's almost easier to capture the words in a sense, you know. Colors are not always the same, you know, from people to people. Like I'll often have a conversation with someone and we'll have an argument over is this purple or is this blue. Um, right. So even, even when I manage to take that image that's in my head and put it on paper, it isn't always necessarily seen the way that I want it to be seen. And somehow words are a little bit easier because there's a, there's a dictionary and I can point to it and say, no, this word actually means this versus color, which is a little bit more subjective. Mm. So when you illustrated this project, 
the the deadlines were they um how did you guys work out um setting the deadlines was it something where the writer set them and you made sure you adhered to those deadlines or was was there a conversation between both of you and you both came up with dates that worked for you both and and you went from there um they were set a little bit by the writer, but also sort of by external forces. She herself is a teacher and a speaker, helping guide other foster parents and social workers and people through the process. And so she had an event coming up, and she decided that she wanted to have books on hand for the event. And so that sort of set the deadline for us. Did you attend the event with her? I did not. Oh. <laughs> I that that probably would have been a good idea, but it might have involved speaking <laughs> to people. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Introvert? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's it was funny because I had a discussion with another author about that. And um why do you think so many writers are introverts? I think it offers us a way to connect with other people and form meaningful relationships where we don't necessarily have to be present to do it. Mm. Like, and it, and it's also a, almost a way of avoiding rejection in a sense too. Like we can put the ideas out there and the people who are our people who uh, think like us or need to hear what we have to say they're going to gravitate towards us and we're going to bond over it and then the people who uh, don't like what we have to say well they don't have to read our book and that's okay <laughs> and compared to years ago where writers could be behind the scenes and just put out good books and and people would support them and without even having to see them or necessarily wanting to see them um just worried focused on the on the content of the work how do you um obviously with that with that personality deal with the i would say demand of readers and social media want, wanting to have more contact with writers because um that's just the way entertainment is you know what i mean they want they want to know their writer just um their favorite book, favorite authors, and they want to have discussions and inboxes and DMs. So how how do you, how are you preparing for that entering that type of world with social media? Ooh, that's kind of a scary question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, I guess I'm kind of prepared for it because I've been uh, attending conventions and as an art guest and doing cosplay for so long that I'm used to being social and social interactions in that space. So I think writing under the shield of speculative fiction and being a huge geek, I can be like, yeah, you know, come out to the convention, meet me, let's talk. Let's, you know, let's let's talk comic books, superheroes. Um, that's if I can frame it in that, like this is my tribe, these are my people it's not as threatening. I think if I was trying to be like New York Times best-selling author uh, talking to your average person, that would be a lot more terrifying. 
And why why do you think it's so different for you? Um, because obviously the writers, you know what I mean? I mean not the writers, the readers would fall into your tribe. Um, obviously you'll have some people who aren't, you know what I mean, who may just love your story that they haven't read that type of genre, but your story grabbed them and or you as a person grabbed them or um so they might they may be out the tribe but still enjoy your work and obviously you guys converse <laughs> in whatever right. manner that is. But why do you think it's so different from being a writer and then cosplay in terms of the interaction? Huh. That's a good question. Hmm. I think maybe it's it's the headspace that I approach cosplay as an actress. That it's a, mm. it's a role that I'm stepping into and stepping out of and a hat that I can put on and take off. And writing is a little bit more vulnerable. It's it's inviting people inside my head. Mm. So how did, how did you get into cosplay? Oh, peer pressure. What? <laughs> 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 um, Peer pressure and also just a, a love of fandom. I saw other people doing it and I wanted to I wanted to be one of the cool kids and do it too. And I had always really loved dress up and costumes as a kid, but it was a little bit less acceptable then. So there was a certain amount of, hey, wait, I can do this thing that I've really always loved and it's cool now. I'm going to do it. And, and, I don't know how to, I'm trying to think about what, because so many things we look at in society now are not necessarily a change, but just more attention on it now. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I say that to say this, um, cosplay is very big now to the point where I see, I follow people on social media that not only do they do the events, but they do their own personal photo shoots as characters. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and it, 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 it is so big. It is so their pictures go viral. Their videos go viral. Why do you think it's so much something like you said, it wasn't that accepted back then? Why is it such a big thing now? You know, I think I think from like a, a complex socioeconomic perspective. The generations before us were coming out of the war mm -hmm. and this environment where they were really all told to like conform, right? But then if you look at the media starting in like the late 70s, early 80s, the messages that we were all fed and raised on, Care Bears, She-Ra, Thundercats, Transformers, mm -hmm. it's all be yourself, be you. No matter how weird you are, and when you put your weird together with all of your friends' weird, you guys have superpowers. Right. And I, I think, like, as a generation, this kind of hit home with all of us. And there's a, there's a certain, I guess, level of friendship that develops when, as grown adults, you can play make-believe together. Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes a, a safe space. And I think our world is full of a lot of bleed awful scary stuff and so coming together with people of incredibly different backgrounds and bonding over this shared make-believe is has the power to be pretty transformative 
and healing in a lot of ways. Hmm. So, what was your favorite character to to cosplay for? Uh, you know, it's funny. I always thought it was going to be Wonder Woman, and I I do love cosplaying Wonder Woman, but it was cosplaying as a Ghostbuster that hit home. Oh, really? Yeah. I was such like a little nerdy kid interested in science, and I'm still kind of obsessed with parapsychology. And so putting on that suit, I felt like I was going to go protect people. I was going to go bust some ghosts. And that just, <laughs> I felt like a badass. <laughs> now, what, what, what goes behind it? Because some people make it look so easy. They make it look like it's, you know what I mean? They, 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 they do it so much that you look at them, oh, oh that could be but some people <laughs> they really spend time and and they kill it like you know what i mean they they're they mm-hmm. they look like they could play in those movies or those films and or those cartoons they they look fresh out and some and, and most of the time they're like custom like the costumes are custom there's not something you could just buy off amazon and people so what could explain to people the process of what goes into um, cosplay and obviously the competitive nature. I, I would I would assume that's behind it as well. Right. So it, you know, it, it depends on your your goal and sort of the level that you're at, and and where you want to go with it. I'm a big fan of casual cosplay because I like to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love to go to the thrift store and put together outfits that look like you know, like my my first Wonder Woman cosplay was Wonder Woman goes to the office. You know, <laughs> take take these characters and put them in like everyday situations because they're not, uh, you know, don't be just awesome all the time. And so it's fun to play with it like that. Um, but then there's also the level of, you know, attention to detail of a character that always that already existed. And then there are people who come up with their own unique creations and stories. And it's really, where do you want to take it? It can be as simple as you can buy a costume off of Amazon and wear it to the convention, or you can come up with a full character and story and play and act it out and perform in the masquerade. And that's really amazing too. And so it, it depends upon the person. You know, I have friends that are casual cosplayers like me who love to modify pre-existing garments. And then I have friends who do crazy things like go to Joanne's and buy several yards of fabric and spend 20 hours creating unseely fairy <laughs> costumes for MarsCon because why not? Uh, so it, <laughs> there's a lot of craziness that goes into it. There's a lot of uh, of packing, too. Like I think... Uh, you know, I have gone to Dragon Con in a 50-footer mm. and a van behind wow. us because we had to fit the people somewhere too, right? Wow. <laughs> uh, you know, motorized vehicles. Uh, you know, and some people do really, really cool uh, things that I love of incorporating their physical challenges into their costumes. One of my favorite ever is a lady at Dragon Con who decks out her entire wheelchair as a dragon. So she's not riding around in a wheelchair. She's riding a dragon. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's, she's got an epic outfit that goes with it, too. And you're just like, can I be you when I grow up? 
<laughs> so, uh, what words of encouragement would you give somebody who is interested in like cosplay and, and, and attending these events? Um, obviously, like you said, you meet so many unique people, so many people that are similar to you and you make friends. So people who are on like the brink of, oh, like, I don't know what to expect. I don't know if I should go in costume or if it's like, how do you, people who are interested in it, what words of encouragement would, would you give them? Be you. Like, just be you. Whatever it is you are interested in, there's somebody else who is just as interested as you are. And the minute you put your passion on display and say, hey, I'm wildly obsessed with this obscure thing, you're going to meet your next best friend. Mm. So just feel brave in being you and express that honestly. So when it comes to your writing, <laughs> why, why were you so unwilling to call yourself a writer until this moment? I, I thought it was something you had to get paid to do or you had to have a degree in it or some sort of approval from society of like, yes, you are a writer, some sort of piece of paper or some sort of vetting process. And then um, I guess I realized being a writer isn't about being an author. Or being published, it's about writing. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so obviously now you are an author. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, um, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> that happened. <laughs> it it um, did. What was what was the family's reaction when you when when they obviously knew you were a writer growing up? Um what was the what was their reaction when they found out you were actually publishing something that piece of work um i you know it's it's been interesting, so like the members of my biological family that I'm in touch with, like my brothers, they're very much like, "Yeah, this is awesome. We knew you had it in you um which was it was a little weird, like you guys always knew when I didn't um of course you did, you're my brothers, brothers know everything. <laughs> uh, you know and and my adoptive family too were really super supportive and like we we knew you could do it and we're, we're really proud of you so i think everybody was just really supportive and excited for me and wanting to read it which i guess too i should have expected but didn't you know, this idea that suddenly everybody in my family would be like, oh, we want to read your book. And I'm like, ah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Right. No pressure. <laughs> so the, the genre you wrote in, um, <laughs> is that, a, do you see yourself, is that a genre? Because most people like to stick in, in genres. Are you that type of writer or are you someone who would is open to exploring different genres based on how you feel in your creativity i think i'm gonna be an explorer like my book is sort of shelved in the paranormal romance genre because it is a love story and one mm -hmm. of the main characters is a ghost 
so it fits there but it's also magical realism and it's also a self-help novel and it's also a little bit of a science textbook so it's uh it's a little all over the place and i think my writing probably will continue to be because i i think good things can't be limited mm. and 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 shouldn't necessarily be limited oh absolutely like if da vinci had limited himself that would have been it right right <laughs> <laughs> So, Mocha Memoirs Press. Yes. Tell, tell me about them. Um, Mocha Memoirs Press is run by my amazing friend, Nicole, who is totally brilliant and supportive, and I would not be a published author without her. Literally, mm. throughout the year-long editing process, she kept being like, so how's the book coming? How's the book coming? You ready to just... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, she, you know, recognized the need in speculative fiction for representation and diversity because as a black woman who loves horror and speculative fiction, there wasn't a lot of good things for her to read. Mm. Um, nor were there a lot of books that she wanted to see published. And so, you know, she was like, all right, well we're going to fix this. We can do this. Uh, and so uh, as a result, some amazing things have come out of that. Like we have an anthology that I absolutely love. It's the Black Magic Women Anthology, Terrifying Tales by Scary Sisters. And I'm not a horror person. I would have told you that I don't like horror because it's scary, but I love this book. Every person who gets killed in it absolutely deserves it. And the whole way through, I'm like, yeah, girl, kill him, kill him. Kill him. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's been a great journey for me because Nicole consistently writes things both as a writer and then publishes things as a publisher that I'm like, mm, like, I did not think I was into Westerns. I didn't think I was into Pulp Detectives. And I discovered that when you take the white dude out of it and replace it with somebody else, much more interesting story. Mm. So That's interesting. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we, we've been a little oversaturated. Like we've had enough John Wayne. Right. right, right. There were some other cowboys. Let's talk about them. Right. So why do you think why do you think that's important in this industry as uh not only for the writers but for the readers as well to have those stories from like you said you changing the perspective you you're putting a different character different absolutely opposite of what the norm is and why do you think that's important i think we all need to see ourselves in fiction you know we all need to feel like the myths apply to us and that there's something that we can learn and it was it was really transformative for me as a survivor of trauma to discover Mercedes Lackey's books because she consistently has characters who've experienced trauma. But unlike your standard treatment where, like, you know, the foster kid is troubled and goes to jail and then becomes a drug addict mm -hmm. because that's what foster kids do. Um, in her stories, 
the foster kid becomes the hero of the kingdom and saves the day. Mm. And I was like, hey, wait, what? I can be a hero. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> um, and so I feel like we all need to see ourselves and know that we can be better, do better. Feel like we, we belong, we fit in. And as right. healing as that's been for me, I feel like we should all have it. And I just like the stories better. Right. Now, do you feel obligation as a writer to convey those same positive messages that had such an impact on your life to now give some another reader that same impact through your story? I do. I absolutely do. I feel like stories can save a life. And if my story can help somebody feel seen and loved, why else would I, what better reason could I have for writing? Mm. Now, break down for for the listeners that don't know. Break down speculative fiction for them. Okay, so speculative fiction is anything that answers the question of what if. Like, what if aliens landed tomorrow? What if we colonized another planet? What if vampires were real? Um, you know, science fiction, fantasy, anything that sort of outside of the bounds of your standard sitcom where you have to have a little bit of a suspension of disbelief or engage your imagination. So, so now Mocha Memoirs Press, your guys' mission is to, like you said, it, it is to amplify those voices in that genre. Um, how has it been uh, for you guys in terms of the support from the readers and writers who who prefer this genre, and what's the plan moving forward once you get those voices heard? Um, I think in a lot of ways it's been positive and bolstering to the ego. I don't know if it's like ego bolstering, but like a confirmation that we're on the right path to see how well received, like for example, the Black Magic Women anthology was. That is across the top our bestseller. And yet black women in the horror genre are so underrepresented that it's it's nice to do something like that. And then people recognize it and fall in love with it and be like, yes, this is amazing. So it it has been good. And I think it's it has brought people together. It's brought us better writers and better stories. And even the people who are fans of the press, I feel like we um, in our fan groups and things tend to have relationships with each other and, and form friendships because we have sort of this this common purpose behind us and this understanding that we're all here for the same thing. So we are we are building a community. Our plan this year is to uh, reach out beyond the internet and sort of get more in touch with bookstores, mom and pop stores, individuals, and reach out to them because you know a lot of a lot of the publishing industry and a lot of business today is conducted in sort of this isolation of the internet and it's a little cold sometimes and right. so 
you know, as part of the, the marginalized voices, you know, we want to support marginalized bookstores. Right. Reach people who aren't being reached through the normal channels because everyone deserves to have a good book. Whether or not they have an Amazon yeah. account. Oh. Hell yeah. <laughs> so when you um join Mocha Memoirs Press, you 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 handle the social media marketing for them? I do. How is how is that uh, from an aspect of handling that as for a publisher and, and as well as knowing how important it is as a, uh, for your writing career? I, it's definitely given me um, a lot of background information for my career as a writer because I've had to do a lot of research and come up with sort of best procedures and advice for incoming authors and help them learn how to promote their books and develop promotional strategies for us. So it's forced me to learn some things that I probably would not have been comfortable learning on my own. Because promoting myself feels kind of like I'm being egotistical, but doing it for work is still my job, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so for a writer coming up now mm -hmm. who doesn't know uh, a thing about marketing, um, what, what, what advice would you give them in terms of marketing themselves as an author in their, pro in their books? I would say, I think probably maybe two main pieces of advice. Um, number one would be, you need a website. And I know that involves money, but you can get a free website through WordPress or Wix or Blogspot. Like it doesn't, Everybody loves dot-coms because they're so sexy in our modern world. But really, you just need people to have the ability to do an internet search of your name and author and find your page. Because as a reader, it's really frustrating when I find a good book and I want to read more by the author. And then I try to Google search them and I am unable to find them. Mm. Um, and then point two would be just be yourself and make friends. Um, I am, like I said, friends with other published authors, and one of whom is wildly successful. And I actually read her books and was a fan of hers before becoming friends with her. Is really successful about that. She's a huge supernatural fan, and she goes into fan groups and just posts goofy little memes and things about that. But then all of the supernatural fans sort of follow her back to her author page which works because her books are in that like sort of monster hunter demon fighter genre. And so, you know, if you just go out into the world, make friends with people and be you, the people who will like your books will sort of automatically follow you home. And then you can be promoting yourself without being salesy or schmarmy because nobody wants that. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think, um, and I don't know what what it is about some authors that do that. They're all sales pitchy with their stuff, and um, sometimes borderline annoying. Uh, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like with the re repetitive, repetitive behavior. I don't, I just don't understand what it is, but it may just be a lack of knowledge of knowing who their audience is, knowing how to target their audience and 
what uh what's effective and what's not (laughs) i think so and probably also you know like you said earlier you know it used to be that the authors could be really hidden and behind the scenes and i think with a, a change in technology and a generational change in what new readers want you you sort of have to keep up with that or risk looking pushy Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, what what do you think about traditional publishing in in twenty twenty? Um, how much has self publishing affected that that world? I, you know, I think it has. There are a lot more books available, and so as authors, we kind of have to work maybe a little bit harder to make our stuff stand out, be a little bit more personable, work on connecting with our tribe. Um, but it's it's also a, a quantity versus quality question. There are some people out there, and I, I know several self-published authors that I've met through Twitter and on the convention circuit who you know, they, they paid to have their work edited and they went through just as much work as if they had done the traditional route and their books are just as good. And then there are the people who wrote their book um, on the iPages app on their iPhone and published it through there because you can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you have to, there's a, there's kind of a burden now on the, writer to say yes my work was professionally edited yes i put effort into this right to to sort of stand out from the crowd but you know the the traditional publishing market is also seriously oversaturated and has a lot of gatekeeping so self-publishing is a viable option for a lot of people especially those who are telling stories that traditional publishing isn't worth so uh, break break down your publishing uh, journey for me. Um, once you had your manuscript completed, what was the process like for you, um, including like the ups and downs of everything that you had to go through to get get your book prepared for the publish date for um, February? Um, my my publishing process was really I think non. Uh, non-traditional and unusual compared to what a lot of people experience. I had really, yeah. Well, I had written this book telling myself that no one ever had to read it. Like I, I I conned myself into thinking that it was never going to leave my phone. Um, and so then, uh, I was, I was at a convention and on some panels with, you know, my friend and boss and Nicole said a couple of things and I just I felt I felt like she was calling me out. She didn't know that she was calling me out. But I told her, I feel like you're calling me out. She said, oh, yeah, really? <laughs> really? Why is that? And I said, well, I have this paranormal romance that I've got languishing on my phone that is in editing right now. And she said, oh, good. We need some of those for the press. You're going to submit it to me, right? Mm. Um, so I, I had an offer for it sort of before it was finished and also a a publisher peer pressuring me into finishing it. 
both of which I probably needed because I'm stubborn. But uh, <laughs> it, it was an, an agonizing process of a lot of editing. So, like, I wrote it on my phone, so it was rough and sloppy. And then when I put it on my computer, I went back and looked at it and was like, did you write this in the third grade? Or, oh, my God, this is a hot mess. <laughs> so, I, you know, I probably edited it myself seven times before I passed the manuscript wow. off to my sister. Uh, and then she edited it. And then I sent it to another friend who is an editor and had her edit it and then brought it back to my sister and put all of the different versions together and then you know submitted it to my boss and was like okay it's it's ready and she went well you know from a financial standpoint you've already had it edited by two separate editors one of whom already works for the press it looks really clean you're good Mm. Um, so that was unexpected because while I did go through the heartache of, you know, ripping through my manuscript and making it bleed and retyping it multiple times in the agonizing process, I got to do it with my sister and one of my friends. So it wasn't nearly as threatening as I had imagined. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> but uh that that rough first draft is a far cry from you know, even the seventh edit that I sent on, which is really different than the, the finished manuscript that went in. And then seeing how it came in proofreading and then again in typesetting. My book has a lot of non-sequential flashback elements. And the typesetter did this beautiful job of setting it off and making that clear and, and that process of, oh, okay, well, we need to fix you've actually made this better and I need to mm. to go with that. So that was a part of it too, was trusting the the beta readers and the editors and the proofreader and everybody to know that my book was in the best form, which is really hard, especially when you're a right. first-time author. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But so, yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of working on the manuscript and then... Um, I had to come up with the cover and the cover wrap, which is, uh, you know, again, probably not normal for authors unless they're self-publishing, but because I work for the press, I get to be like, hey, boss, I did my own cover. Can you like that? <laughs> and and luckily, she, <laughs> luckily, she liked it. Oh, so you created your own cover as I well. I did, I did. So what, what, um... What was the inspiration behind that cover? Uh, it wound up honestly being the result of a Google image search. It's such an abstract story that I wanted to find a way to, I knew it couldn't be a, like a photorealistic cover, that it needed to be sort of more an illustrated style, but I wasn't sure how to convey it. And so one of the, one of the visual symbols, one of the thematic elements that I use in my story over and over again is the, the red thread of destiny, which in Asian cultures, especially Chinese and Japanese, is supposed to be an invisible cord that ties soulmates together in a thread. And so I started mm. searching for this image and I found an, an animated gift that was 
really interesting and simplistic and I, I liked it and went, okay, I like where this is going from here and started playing with that as a, as a design element and building on it and adding and subtracting and taking away. And then finally I went, oh, that's it. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it 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 it's definitely um, it the cover definitely catches your eye. Now that you tell me, the meaning behind it is even more interesting now because you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, there's a there's actually a lot of symbolism in the the cover that tells you a lot about the story. Hmm. So why? Uh, and I and I and I ask these questions to, um, just get. Like, obviously, some listeners are going to be writers, but just to show them the thought process that of every detail, um, you know what I mean? From writing the story to even designing the cover, why it's related, because you, you've seen work on the, you know what I mean? I'm sure mm -hmm. that it's <laughs> irrelevant. And then you're like, why is that? Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm always that reader that sits back and looks at the cover and is like, I don't understand. Why did you put her in a purple right. dress? The grass, the, the book clearly says it was green. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want that to happen in my cover. Right. So, so what, what, why is that important? Just, just why, why is that connection between everything in the story and everything that's displayed, whether it's illustrations inside, whether it's um, designs, simple as designs inside. I, I know some people get very creative with the formatting, you know what I mean, in mm -hmm. terms of the, 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 the headings. Why is all of that important, important to be connected and not just throwing anything on the cover and inside the book? You know, I think human beings are visual creatures. And probably from an evolutionary standpoint, that makes sense. Like a lot of the food that we eat is really pretty, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think we're used to visuals giving us a clue, at least in our society, to what's going on. Like if you think about the way that a, the horror movie is filmed or the way that a haunted house dresses their set, there are particular lighting cues and colors that are used to psychologically manipulate the viewer and put you in the frame of mind that they want you to be in. And whether or not we realize it, this is happening to us all the time with advertising, television, media all around us. So I think if you don't package your story to the level that we're used to seeing in our society, then it comes across as unprofessional or in some cases even jarring. Hmm. So for, for you, um, would it, would it, would it, because, it's funny because you, you talked about the editing process and, and going through it and your reaction to your own work from the, from the first draft to even your seventh pass and then getting it back. Um, there's a little sympathy that goes out to the writers who can't necessarily afford um, the type of editor they need, but even like you said, seven passes, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. is, is a lot of work you can do. So why, uh, why is that important? And what 
recommendation would you make to a writer who just is at a point where they think they they can't afford it or they don't know what to do? What advice would you give them in terms of their first draft when they're looking at it? I mean, I think that it's important because you want you want clarity. You want your reader to see, read, experience the, the best possible version of you and your story. And as an author, the first book that any reader picks up of yours is like a job interview or a first date. You don't want to go to your first date smelling like you just got off the line of work. You're going to take a shower <laughs> first, right? <laughs> editing right we we hope hope. life advice shower before your first day right uh but you know same sort of thing with your book you want to you want to clean it up a little bit first you want to make it presentable before your first date with the reader you want to you want to romance them and impress them with why they should take you home with them Uh, Mm. so you know, if you feel like you can't afford it, think outside the box. There are other writers like you who are out there who have a book that they want to put out and they can't afford an editor either. So go on to Twitter, use the writing community hashtag and say, hey, are there any writers who are willing to swap stories with me? I'll read yours. You read mine. We give each other constructive feedback. You know, because if I had had to pay for the editing of my story, my book would still be sitting on my computer. I promised my sister that I would edit her book and I uh, am doing a bartering deal with my second editor to where I'm going to do her website in exchange for the book. So legitimately think about skills that you have. And one of the easiest is if you're a writer, a reader, trade with other readers, swap with them. Say, hey, would you be willing to read my book? Give me some advice. I'll give you a a shout out in the pages. Mm. You know, alternatively, there are services like Fiverr and other places in our gig economy where you can find editors that you can hire for reasonable rates. Just be careful. Yeah, just be very careful. So, so website design too, huh? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) they do everything how do you find time to do so many things Uh, i never finish anything (laughs) (laughs) so if if you have a writer in front of you and they're and they're confused about a website design you based on your experience what is what catches the eye from a website what are must-haves on an author's website. On an author's website, you need to have something about you. To give us give us a sense of your personality, some sort of bio. And I and it doesn't have to be serious. Like I think in my author's bio for my website, I wrote that I'm the sort of author that hates talking about herself. Because uh, it's it's <laughs> honest and it's funny, um, and it gives people right. a sense of my personality. So, you know, if you need to list like your Hogwarts house, your favorite Pokemon and who you think the rightful (laughs) king of the seven kingdoms is, do it. Uh, But but put something put something of you that people can get a feel of your personality. Um, 
try to, as, as well as that something, if you write something, if you can do blogging, that's fantastic. And even if it's just silly little lists, like my 10 favorite books, five, my five favorite superheroes, what I like to eat for breakfast every day. The point is to give people a taste of your writing style and also reassure them that you are a real human and somebody that they want to get to know. Mm. That's very good advice. (laughs) 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 So point of view, what do you, which one do you prefer to write in? You know, I always really preferred third person, but my book had to be told in the third first person so i switched mm. over um and while i i i miss the ability to jump around and tell you what every character is thinking and feeling so that you have like a godlike perspective of the world i also really right. appreciate the sort of intimate emotional details that you can get in a first person narrative and really a sense for who a character is so i think i've decided that it depends on the story and I haven't yet read one that works in second person, but this is a challenge to all the writers out there listening. I want to read your amazing second person narrative because I think it can be done. <laughs> I didn't realize how, how much how many writers preferred first person over third. You know what I mean? Really? I don't know. Yeah. I, every time, every time I, I'm looking at um, those groups, those writer groups on, mm-hmm. online, and they, somebody somebody poses that question. I'm like one of three people out of fifty that say third. <laughs> <Everybody> <laughs> says first. I guess like, I would the- I would be one of those other three with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, what the- <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, a quick question before we jump into um, your book. Yeah. Have you ever, have you illustrated for anyone else outside of that one project? Um, I have. I've done, um, you know, uh, I've done some personal projects. Like, I've, I've illustrated some children's books for kids. Like, they wrote the book, and then um, I illustrated it for them, and then their parents got it, and school got it found kind of thing. Um, I, really? Yeah. I've done logos for people, and uh, I, I always wanted to do tattoos, but I haven't gotten to do that yet. Oh, snap. I think of a children's book of tattoos. <laughs> well, you know, what better compliment than somebody being like, I want your right. art on my skin. Yes, I've made it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> so what, uh, what is life like as an illustrator because uh, obviously some most of these people here your life as a writer what is life like as an illustrator how do you know when if you're doing the story justice or when you do the story justice how do you know as an illustrator i think i think you have to put on different hats Kind of just like you do as a writer. So you have on your illustrator hat and then you have to step away from it, take off the illustrator hat and put on the reader hat and come back and look at the picture 
And when you look at the picture with your reader hat on and go, I know what this page says without reading the words, you're done. Mm. And, it, and it doesn't have to be, I know everything this page says, but you should be able to look at it in a glance and have, have an emotional connection to it. Because that's, that's one of the things that I've realized um, having kids in my life and being an aunt that gets asked to read stories is the stories that they ask me to read the most often are the ones where they know what I'm going to say because the picture goes really is, is showing. Have you ever turned down a project? Have I ever turned down a project? I have actually. Um, my uncle wanted me to do uh, uh, princessy kind of Christian story. Like it was, it was somewhere between um, one of those princess shows on the Disney Channel and Chronicles of Narnia, and it sounded like an interesting concept, but it just wasn't, it just wasn't me. The style didn't fit me and the story didn't really fit me. And so I said, you know, like, I love you and your family, but I think you deserve to have this <laughs> done by someone who's passionate about it. <laughs> the butt. The butt. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I turned down my uncle. <laughs> I was, I was. How's that reaction from him? Uh, he was really nice about it. He was just kind of like, okay, yeah. well, you know, just asking. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, he might have been hurt. Has he, has he, right. I oh, hope yeah, not. Sure <laughs> Sorry, Uncle Chris. I has still he, love you. <laughs> has he completed it since, you know? No. <laughs> Damn, that's messed up. <laughs> it is. I feel kind of bad. <laughs> now, now, logo design. Um, mm -hmm. What is that like? Uh, getting someone, get, you know what I mean? Someone having someone reach out to you about a logo design because, as we know, that's the representation of someone's mm -hmm. brand. You know what I mean? That's a big. I would think is a big honor. I never, I did a logo before, but it wasn't like. I don't know. It wasn't like logo, logo. So how was that? <laughs> it it is a big honor. I um when when Nicole told me that she was gonna let me handle the rebranding of the press and do our new logo, I was just like, What? <laughs> like, I'm gonna um um <laughs> I'm totally not crying right now. I'm really not <laughs> kind of response. Um, because it is it is huge. Um, but it's also something that I've had to learn to say yes to the right projects and no to the wrong ones kind of thing. Like, I don't really want to design your logo for your shoe company because I'm not really into shoes. But, um, mm. you know, the logo for our press or I was fortunate enough to get to do the logo for the North Carolina Foster and Adoptive Parent Association. And every time I see it, it makes me smile. Wow. It's about knowing yourself too enough to say when to say no and when to say yes. Mm. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> 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 because I don't know. It's just that I don't know. The nose, 
I don't know. As, as obviously, you know, as someone, you know, like you said, the fear of rejection. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, <laughs> and it's so hard you too. Be on the side of it, rejection. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're like you're trying to pay the bills and you're trying to be like, well, no, I, I got to do this because it's gonna pay the bills. But the thing that I discovered right. is that when you, you know if you're a designer and you're doing design work for things that you don't enjoy, then after a few years go by, you suddenly hate design. Mm. Like I, I, I stopped doing any sort of graphic design work for several years because I kept getting these corporate gigs. I mean, corporate ish, not like big corporate, but people who wanted that had that sort of attitude. And, uh, I was miserable and it made me hate it. Mm. What got you? What got you back into it? What What was that project that you decided to jump on it? That it turned was, that around. It was the kids' book, uh, the foster mm. and adoption illustration project. I hadn't wanted to do illustration or anything like that in a while, and I said, you know, this this I am willing to do because my heart was. Good thing they came around, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the, the laws of engagement, I mean, entanglement, I'm sorry. I don't know why I keep thinking of laws of engagement. <laughs> the laws it's of a entanglement. romance story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, break down that story uh, for people that don't know. Okay. So on the, on the, it's, it's a very layered thing. Kind of like a, a lasagna. Keep digging and digging. Um, but on the surface, the surface story, at its simplest level, is about a young girl who's a medium, and um, she contacts this ghost that she thinks is going to train her in her spiritual powers. Um, except that he falls in love with her at first sight, and if she's being honest with herself, she was in love with him too. She just... The only way she could think to talk to him was to ask him to teach her. Um, and so they, they embark on this relationship, and at some point in it, she realizes that it's really unhealthy for her and starts to question, like, would, like, dating a dead guy, what kind of, <laughs> is this a really healthy plan? Is this a really healthy plan? Am I crazy? <laughs> what is wrong with me? Um, and, and after, you know, well-meaning advice from others decides he's not real, he's all in her head. She's entirely created him and walked away and attempts to live her life in denial of this really deep-seated love she has for her, which doesn't work out well because denying who you are never does. And so, you know, she has to embark on this journey in her own psyche and also in the spirit world and a little bit in the physical world too of what the heck is going on here was this real did i actually have a relationship with this person am i crazy um and if this was real like why why would the universe do this to me what purpose does this serve why me so writing this type of story when you're talking about someone with an attraction to a coast, you know what I mean? Right. So, and writing. Yeah. How do you get into that 
mindset in the thought process of how, because I, like you said, like you mentioned, it, it is first person. So how do you get yourself in that mood and that, that mindset to write for your character? I, um, I guess I cheated. I made her a lot like me. You know, I said, you know, from a writing perspective, what will we be the benefit like, of being in a relationship with a ghost who would be the best possible person who, you know, who, who would feel safer? In a relationship with a ghost, they would need a, it to be a ghost instead of a living person. And I went, okay, this is a survivor of trauma, and so she needs to be in a relationship with a ghost because he can't hurt her. Mm-hmm. So I took a lot of like my trauma and background as a foster child and and put that into her because it it made sense. Of like this would be a really interesting way to help her heal, um, and so that's that's how I got into that to that headspace. And um, you know, I, I dug out some of my high school yearbooks and those poetry pieces and scraps of paper. You know, like digging for who I was as a teenager because the story starts off with her as a teenager. Uh, to try to get back into that like angst filled space of like, oh my God, I don't have a date for the prom. It's the end of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Give me Maya's writing setup because everybody has their own (laughs) quirky way. Uh, Some people need music. Some people need Total silence. What is your writing setup? <laughs> My writing setup is usually um, late at night when my niece has finally gone to sleep. My sister is usually off somewhere writing, and I'm like curled up in my bed with my phone, like seriously typing away with my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> in a in a in a in a dark room where no one can see me. Um you know. <laughs> you know, but but sometimes also like outside in a chair while the kids are jumping on the trampoline screaming or um while I'm sitting somewhere waiting because something just sort of popped into my head and it won't let go. I'm I am grateful for the advancement of cell phones because I am that writer who will just whip out my phone and be like, oh my God, I know how the scene has to end and just hold on, guys, and start <laughs> typing. <laughs> so writing on a phone, you write on the, you prefer to write on the phone. So even if you're home and not out and you can you have access to pen and paper or the laptop, you'll write on the phone first? I will, uh, which is weird, but I think it's like a psychological <laughs> trick kind of thing. Like I've, my work life involves the computer at every level. Um, so I think mm. psychologically when I sit down in front of the computer, my brain's like, oh, it's time for work. Time for work. Um, and then writing notes on paper, old school feels like I'm in class. Like, oh, it's time to pay attention. Time to do a research project. Mm. And I can write on paper, but because I always wrote all of my argumentative research essays on paper, uh, when I try to write fiction on paper, it starts sounding like I'm writing a thesis and then nobody can understand what the heck I'm saying. Or how to... 
Um, so the phone though, I'm like, oh, it's just like this thing that's for fun. Right. So no pressure. I'm over here playing. And honestly, it started because uh, I was like, I waste way too much time looking at my screen time on all these stupid phone games. What can I do instead? And I was like, okay, life hack. Instead of playing the stupid phone game, you're going to open up an app and start writing. Mm. And then I wound up with a novel. So I guess that worked for me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the plan for the release? Uh the plan for the release is that I'm probably gonna have like a, a smallish launch party locally with family and friends and then have some signings at uh, some local bookstores and then at the end of February I will be uh going to Mysticon in Roanoke, Virginia for a reading and a signing. And then I'll have mm. another, I have two more um, convention appearances right now, book uh, Congregate in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Tom Carolina in Charlotte. So what's the emotion you're feeling right now uh, as we approach? Um, I am consistently reminding myself to breathe and not panic and that it is okay. It's okay if everybody hates it. <laughs> it's okay if they all laugh at me. <laughs> um, what matters is that I did this and I showed up for myself. Uh, so panic. <laughs> A lot of panic. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... The, the launch part, the launch party. You say you're going to do a smaller? Why? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, just to, just to get me comfortable. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> and it's also, you know, it's right around the corner. Like right now as we're recording it, I'm, I'm less than two weeks out from the launch party. Right. It literally is right around the corner. Yeah, it, it is. Now really. you just... Did you, your sister had um, released any projects as well, or is she working on her first one? She is working on her first one. She's working on her first several. She just, um, she's that history nerd who decided to write a historical novel for her first book and then realized that she had oh, to do wow. a lot more research. And so um, I might have accidentally thrown up lot bunny her way and convinced her that she should write a paranormal romance about a nixie instead right. so hopefully uh she's working <laughs> on that and it'll be it'll be coming out from the press here in the next year so now how is that, that, that that's cool to have two writers um that are right there uh especially being sisters, the competitive nature, the supportive nature, you know what I mean? You have everything yeah. together. You guys can motivate each other. How, how is that? Uh, it is, it is integral to, to me as a writer because she's been you know, reading over my stuff and editing it since we were teenagers. So and I know that it's made me a better writer and I have a respect for having a relationship with an editor and producer writing. It's it's definitely a a blessing. The biggest problem we have is that between the two of us, we have way more ideas than we have time to write. 
Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> she'll she'll look at me and say, "No, no more plot bunnies. Stop that." <laughs> right? Yeah, we gotta finish the ones. We, <laughs> we gotta started. finish the ones we started. <laughs> Do you ever see yourselves um, writing a book together? Um. Yes, we actually we we have a plan. We even have like the background for the story. We're just working on our individual projects first. But there is a. Mm. a plan to write sort of a a twist on the sort of the the supernatural story because it's always like a pair of brothers and you know we're in in watching these shows we're always making the snarky comments about how they're doing it stupid and wrong um so we've decided <laughs> that we we <laughs> we want to tell the story from the the female perspective of like all of the all of the little life hacks that they would use to make monster catching easier because you know we live in a, a time of technology and ridiculous planning so why not use it to your benefit so we have a sort of humorous monster hunter story mm. so the laws of entanglement break down that that title um <laughs> It uh, it's kind of a play on a combination of the laws of attraction and quantum entanglement. So in the like the the new age self help community, there's this uh, concept of the laws of attraction, which is this idea that um, if you you're clear about what you want and have sort of done the work to make sure that the universe can give it to you and put it out there, you can manifest anything you want if you're clear enough um and then quantum entanglement is the concept that um, you know two one particle that splits into two particles no matter how far apart they are are always connected in space and time and share similar qualities and so i combine those two together because both of those you know, inform the story in this journey of the two of them being connected. And it's also a, a quantum physics meets new age thought kind of idea of um, what if soulmates are literally nothing more than the particle that we split off from during the Big Bang? What if, mm. physics, what if physics could explain love and vice versa? <laughs> you know, what if, what if love is the gravitational force between two particles? Mm. So why? So tell us why it's important for go for us to go out and and get this novel and dive into it. Well, you know, I think at our heart we all want to be loved, but ultimately we're all scared to be ourselves. And the challenge arises when we go out into the world and try to get into relationships, pretending to be someone we're not then those relationships always end horribly because we've been lying. So this mm. book is really about uh, the journey of learning to love yourself and accept yourself and how that makes you a better person and is required for a healthy romantic relationship. Mm. So now we are going to jump into a segment of the podcast which is called a lightning round which everyone calls a lightning round lightning round 
<laughs> but I'm gonna uh <laughs> I'm gonna ask you I'm gonna give you two things. You gotta give me uh one answer and hold on, let me set my timer. Thirty seconds, which we always go over, but whatever. <laughs> For real, I don't know. We always go over thirty seconds. Thirty <laughs> seconds is really not that long <laughs> to be answering questions. <laughs> um, so you just let me know when you're ready. Okay, so you're going to give me two things, and I'm supposed to what now? Pick what one. Is, pick one. Okay. All right, I'm ready. Yep. <laughs> All right. Windows or Mac? Windows. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Instagram or Twitter? Ooh. Uh, uh, Instagram. <laughs> Physical books or ebooks? Physical books. They smell better. <laughs> Texting or talking? Texting. Tea or coffee? Oh, God. I... Coffee? <laughs> yes, have some. <laughs> Laptop or <laughs> Laptop or desktop? Ooh. Ooh. Am I gaming? Um laptop <laughs> <laughs> standalones or sequels sequels data ghost or data monster ghost <laughs> that was a minute <laughs> I just thought about it. I'm like the monster I wonder what that would be like I don't know. There's a lot you can. That could be broadly interpreted. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is it like a like like a monster ink monster that's like missing the story? Is it like a monster monster that's like that's like evil? And then you like (laughs) then you're tagging along with that nonsense, right? Or they (laughs) or they really evil? Or is a matter of perception? Is this like a Grendel story where like you think they're a monster, but they're really like the sweetest person ever? Right. Oh, yeah. Or one of those her- heroic villains now, nowadays oh, that they keep coming oh, up with. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, how, how, how is everybody creating these villains that are, like, doing, well, I guess, in their mind? You know what I mean? The <laughs> hero of their own are, story like, villains, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and you can relate. And then there are a group of people out there that, that will consider them heroes for what they're doing. Yeah, you're <laughs> like, you're like I'm trying to hate you. Stop it. I really exactly. want to hate them. Right. <laughs> like Cersei Lannister, damn it. I really want to hate exactly. her. <laughs> so, so drop all your handles, your um, website, all the information, how people can contact you, how can they check out your book, all that type of stuff. All right. So I'm pretty easy to find. I'm Maya Preisler pretty much everywhere. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find me at mayapreisler.com. If you want to look at my art, you can find me at mayarenee.com. Yeah. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. There's not much on YouTube, but my book trailer's there. You can go watch it. I think it's pretty cool. And the book drops. It drops Sunday, February 2nd. February 2nd. All right, Maya, we appreciate you dropping up for uh, jumping by here on the Fiction Addiction podcast. 
definitely appreciate all the gems you dropped for all the, for all the listeners. And uh, pretty sure there's a bunch of writers that are going to be out there that are going to appreciate everything, all the tips you gave in this interview. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Chris. I had a blast. Thank you for joining us on the Fiction Addiction Podcast. Make sure you visit fictionaddictionpodcast.com for links on everything we talked about today, as well as awesome resources, additional tips, and fiction addiction merchandise.